Hello everyone, Rob Howe here, and welcome to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. Just wanted to let you know that if you've been listening all the way to this point from the beginning, you're inching ever closer to hearing over 1,000 years of living with type 1 diabetes. Now, certainly there are some similarities in how we all deal with the disease, but I find it super rewarding to dig into the tactics, tips, mindsets, and insights that make us all different. If you hear something new, interesting, or polarizing, drop me a line. I'd love to discuss it. Uh, Holler at me on Instagram or shoot me an email. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all over the world. And I'm very excited to introduce my special guest today uh, because not only is he calling from uh, the other side of the world from Jerusalem, uh, but his story will take us all over the world as well. So I'll uh, do my best to give him a, uh, a worthy introduction here. So my guest is Orrin Lieberman. He is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and the author of The Insulin Express, which is One Backpack, Five Continents, and the Diabetes Diagnosis That Changed Everything. Uh, and Oren is a CNN correspondent, and uh, like I said, he's over in Jerusalem right now. So Oren, welcome to the show. So glad that you were able to make the time. Rob, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad you can have me on. So uh, for, for those of us who may not be as familiar with your story... Um, you know, you're relatively, I believe you were diagnosed about three years ago, a little over three years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you walk us through sort of the, the background and the context of, uh, you know, how you came to join the type 1 diabetes family? <laughs> so back in uh, September 2013, I was uh, uh, 31 years old. And my wife and I decided, we'd been married for a year, my wife and I decided, that's it, we're going to travel the world. We could either do the sort of the, the quote-unquote normal thing and buy a house and buy a car and start a family, or we could sell everything we own, buy a couple of backpacks, and just start backpacking our way around the world. So we chose option B and just began backpacking. Um, at this point, both my wife and I are perfectly healthy. Uh, I might have been just a touch overweight, but we decided, you know what, we'll backpack and work it off. So we did a couple months in Europe, uh, a couple weeks in Africa, um, we did a couple weeks in Israel and Jordan, and then we did six weeks in Nepal. Um, and it was during the time that I was in Israel, actually, that I began to feel symptoms. The only problem is I didn't actually know they were symptoms. I distinctly remember the first night it was at my aunt's house that I couldn't sleep through the night because I had to get up and go to the bathroom. And from there, these classic symptoms of diabetes began. But when you don't know they're the classic symptoms of diabetes, you just keep walking around and and pretending like nothing's wrong. Uh, And especially with traveling, it was easy to do that. It was easy to keep making excuses for why I was constantly thirsty because we were constantly hiking. And of course I had to go to the bathroom because I I was constantly drinking. So a couple weeks in Israel, I was feeling these symptoms. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Yeah, I I think it's one of those things that we all deal with, right? Because we end up with this chronic illness, uh, but the symptoms are just heightened everyday things right like you know you've got the the dehydration and you've got the you know extra frequent urination and you got some weight loss but you know in the grand scheme of things if you're busy and going from one place to another pretty pretty easy to just you know chalk it up to you know like you said either hiking or being in a different place or you know heat exactly it's so easy to write off these symptoms and and make excuses for them and sure i felt a little bit weak but we were constantly moving so of course i felt tired so then we went, we were in Thailand for just a couple of days, and then we were in Nepal. And we decided Nepal would be our big stint. We, we knew we wanted to give back in some way because we were able to travel. So we were teaching English um, to young Buddhist monks at a monastery in a city called Pokhara, Nepal, the third biggest city in Nepal. Very outdoorsy city. There's a lot of activities you can do there. So we kind of hunkered down. We had a host family, and we stayed for, for quite some time. Before we began teaching at this monastery, we... Our, our host organization, the organization we were volunteering with, had set up a hike to Annapurna Base Camp. Um, not Everest Base Camp, obviously the more famous base camp, but Annapurna Base Camp, which is about at 14,000 feet. And at this time, I had type 1 diabetes and didn't know it. So this is before my diagnosis. And it was on the first day of hiking that cramps attacked my legs. And, and I don't mean just mean I felt cramps. I mean they attacked my legs. And I had to stop and stretch them out and keep drinking. I thought it was just hydration. Um, and this continued for the next four or five days well, as and, we, as we kept climbing. And, and I think, you know, it, as somebody who, so I've climbed one 14 uh, and it was like Pike's peak. So it's like the most tame 14 of all time. Um, <laughs> for those of us now who, you know, you go into a workout and your blood sugar is a little bit high and you're very sensitive to how you feel. 
what was kind of going through your head as you're like, man, what is going on? Um, you know, because that feeling that you have with, you know, whether it's cramps or just, you know, general feeling uh, ill, um, you know, what was kind of going through your mind? Was it just again, like, oh, I'm, I'm climbing a mountain. Of course I should be feeling some sort of, um, adverse, uh, feelings. Yeah, climbing a mountain in a foreign country. My wife was moving well. Um, by day two, we were above 5,000 feet, so altitude begins to affect you, so that was another excuse. So, of course, it's affecting me. It's, it's the altitude. And then the food, it's Nepali food, so it's not its not sort of rich in, in fat and calories and carbohydrates like our Western food. So that's another excuse I was able to use as to why I wasn't feeling 100% and why I was moving a little slower. Um and then shortly before our trip, I'd actually torn my ACL in my right leg. So that was another thing I was able to use as an excuse for why I wasn't moving quickly, because my leg forced me to slow down. Even though my knee was doing great, I'd recovered quite well. Uh, but it was all these excuses as for why I was moving slowly. And the plan was to spend the night at essentially one camp below base camp. And then we'd wake up early in the morning and hike to the top or hike to this base camp and then begin our descent. And I woke up feeling tired. We woke up at, at about six in the morning. It was supposed to be an hour and a half hike. And that hike from, from one camp below base camp to, to actually 14,000 feet uh, took me three hours. And I, I wanted to stop. I wanted to quit. I wanted to sit down and crawl and cry and just turn back because I hadn't eaten anything and I felt exhausted. And my wife was way up ahead of me. She kept looking back to see if I was still moving. And, and that three hours almost broke me, broke my spirit. Um, I, I wanted to just sit down and, and just call it. Um, and eventually I got to the top. It took every bit of my strength and we passed the sign for Annapurna base camp. And my wife said, stop, let's take a picture. And I said, we're not there yet. We still have to get to the top of this little hill. Um, and then I sat down, I had the most expensive Coca-Cola I've ever had in my life <laughs> and I felt great. Um, and of course, I had no idea what was happening. In hindsight, I woke up with low blood sugar and then tried to hike at 13,000 feet with low blood sugar. And of course, I felt great after having a can of Coke. It's pure sugar. Um, and I spiked my blood. I, I spiked my blood sugar, and we we made our way back down. Uh, and that took a couple of days of, of much more relaxing hiking on the way down. And then we started teaching. And this whole time, I have type one diabetes, and I don't know it. And I'm losing weight, but again, I didn't think I'd lost that much weight. So, so of course, I you know I felt good. Hey, I'm losing weight. Who who cares? I'm thirsty. It's the dry season here. Of course, I'm thirsty. Um, and by this point, it is early February 2014, and we skyped with my parents one night and with her parents one night back to back, <clears throat> and they both asked me, "Have you lost some weight? Are you on a diet?" And I kind of shrugged it off and said, "Yeah, I might have lost some weight. Whatever, no big deal." Um, and my parents urged me to step on a scale, and we figured eventually, all right, you know what, let's find some some pharmacy here that has a scale, and we'll step onto it. Um, and we find one, and I step on the scale, and it's in kilograms. So, you know, I'm used to thinking in pounds as an American. And I'm doing the math in my head, and I looked at the pharmacist, and I said, is this accurate? And she said, yeah, it's accurate. And at that point, I realized I'd lost about 20 kilograms, so 40 to 45 pounds. Wow. Um, and that's when I realized that whatever's happening inside of me is not is not me just being thirsty and me just being hiking. That's when I realized something much more serious was wrong. So at, at that point, because you know you're in you're in Nepal, uh, you've obviously got something. You know you have you you get enough data and you get on the scale and you say okay something's wrong. Um, what was the process like for you to find a doctor? You know or a hospital? What you know I imagine it's a little bit different than the U.S. Um, you know, what, what was the sort of the process for you going in and, and finally getting to see somebody? So I, at first I refused to believe anything serious was wrong. I thought maybe just a virus that I would kick in a couple of days or something like that. Um, or malnutrition because the food was so, uh, just wasn't sort of rich in, in fats like we're used to. Um, so the monastery we were teaching at didn't have class. It was a Monday. So we decided, okay, let's go to this clinic. Um, not quite a Western clinic, but sort of a clinic that got good reviews online. So we figured, let's go check it out. Um, and the guy, the guy welcomes us in, and I tell him everything that's been wrong. I, you know, I have to, I'm constantly thirsty. I have, to, I have to pee all the time. I've lost a tremendous amount of weight. What do you think? And he listens to my symptoms. He does a blood test, 
Um, and he comes back to us a couple hours later and he says, you have a low-grade infection. I'll give you some, uh, some, some medicine. Other than that, it sounds like it's just malnutrition. Here's some electrolyte powder. Drink more or eat more and drink more fruit juice. Um, so I said, great. I emailed my parents a very, a very angry email, essentially, because they demanded, they insisted that something was wrong. And I, I sent a very angry email and, and telling them absolutely nothing's wrong. I'm absolutely fine. Um, so for the next three days, I followed his instructions to the T. I drank all the fruit juice I could find. I used his electrolyte powder. Um, and, and, you know, I tried to eat as much as I could because it was just malnutrition. I followed his instructions. And at some point in those three days, I noticed a taste in the back of my mouth. And I kept thinking it's the electrolyte powder because it had this tangy, fruity taste to it. Except every time I took a swig of the electrolyte powder mixed into water, I could tell it was a different flavor. So three days later, and, and in these three days, I was going to the monastery to teach. During these three days, I couldn't make it through about four hours of classes that we had to teach. I would be with my wife for the first class, and then I would have to go sit down in the library and rest for the second class. And I think on the third day, um, I got to the monastery and immediately told Cassie, I'm going to take a cab home. I just don't feel well. So in those three days, I went downhill pretty quickly. Uh, and we decided the following morning she would go teach and I would take a cab over to the clinic and ask him, hey, do you mind? You know, let's try this again because obviously something's not right. Um, so the following morning, it was February 13th, 2014. The following morning, I took the cab over. Cassie went to school or went to the monastery to teach. And I sat down, and this time he didn't take me into his examination room, we just sat in the lobby and talked. And I remember the distinct feeling that he he was not surprised I was back. Just it seemed like he was ready for me to return. And I, I walked him through all the symptoms again and said, I'm not feeling better, I'm feeling quite a lot worse. And he motioned to his assistant, and his assistant knew exactly what to do, which is why I also got the feeling he knew I might come back. Hmm. And his assistant pulled out a blood sugar monitor. And tested my blood sugar and I, I remember the countdown on the numbers it was uh one of the older one touches it had the the five second count and the number came back in the high 300s and there was this pause here and he said i'm sorry to tell you my friend but you are a diabetic and that was it that was my that was my diagnosis of type 1 diabetes um and, and we talked a little bit more. Uh, go ahead. And I think, you know, because I've, I've heard now quite a few diagnosis stories, and I think most people, their only experience is their diagnosis story, right? But those moments leading up to and immediately after and during a diagnosis, whether it's bedside manner, whether it's the, uh, the not only the news delivery, but like the implications of what's going on are really important for the development of type one diabetics, I think both as adults and, you know, as, as children or teenagers. Um, so for you, like you're in that, you're in Nepal, uh, you know, your wife's at, your wife's working, uh, you're there alone. You just had a conversation with the doctor and, and his assistant. And now you get this news dropped on you. What's, what's going through your mind? So for, I mean, nothing made sense at that point. There were a couple of thoughts that kind of like floated around the edge of my subconscious and I, and I kind of knew them to be true, but also couldn't believe them at the moment. First, he told me um, that he was diabetic and everything is going to be fine. The doctor says this. I kind of wanted to ask that how did you misdiagnose me three days ago, but that wasn't the right time to get into that argument. Um, one of my best friends has had type 1 diabetes since he was 10 years old, and I knew he was one of the first people I had to reach out to, and he's he's funny. He's great, he's positive, he's warm and caring, and I knew he would become incredibly important to me. And he became, and still is, my type 1 diabetes mentor. So I knew I had to get in touch with him. I also knew I had to get in touch with my wife. So I kind of immediately tried to put aside the emotional reaction and think rationally for a minute. I need to get in touch with my wife, Cassie. Um, I need to talk to my host family. I need to pack my bags. I need to get on a flight home. That became the goal of everything I had to do was get on a flight home. Um, and get to Western care because I knew I wasn't going to find amazing care in Nepal. Um, so we talked, I talked to the doctor for a few more minutes. I hailed a cab and, um, and I went, I headed back to my host family's house and all I had to say was call Cassie. She has to come home immediately. Um, then at this point I was still kind of thinking somewhat rationally or at least trying to. And the moment my host family, my host mother, Bimala opened the door, I broke down. I couldn't get a single word out. I, I mean, just absolute tears and, and I was just, you know, I couldn't, 
function at that moment. She came over and, and gave me a big hug, and I wrote I wrote about this in, in detail in, in the Insulin Express, the book I was I wrote. And I said at that moment she wasn't a mother; she was my mother. She you know and she cared for me like I was her her son. Um, and it took me quite a while until I could sit down and actually tell her, you know, please call Krishna, your husband, to call a monastery to Delcassi to come home. Um, yeah, because she I, sat- you know that those moments are there's so much unknown, right? And so I think you know you hear we all, and even though you had you know one of your best friends uh, was had type one diabetes, and sounds like you knew you know that he was living fine with it. Just that the weight of that moment, I think, is overwhelming. I think I, I absolutely think back to mine as well. Like I had a twenty-minute drive from the clinic where I was diagnosed to the hospital, and I just remember crying the whole time. Like I was, I was sixteen, and and you know, way too cool for anything that anybody wanted to tell me at the time. And yeah, you know, but at that moment, you're just like, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Is what what is gonna become of my life at this point? Absolutely, absolutely. We, we we had the exact same feelings as I'm sure have so so have so many others. Um, Cassie took a cab home, so she got home fairly quickly. Um, I don't remember if my host family told her it's it's diabetes, but I, I told her the second she arrived. Um, we we called my family pretty quickly, and they were, you know, based on my angry email that I'd sent a couple days earlier, they had every right to yell at me, and <laughs> and they, and they didn't. Um, they were immediately understanding, um, th- and they knew do whatever it takes to get home. Um, so the, the doctor had said, come back the next day and we'll do an official diagnosis, do a, a fasting blood sugar test, eat something and then we'll test afterwards, um, just to make sure. So we had a plan. It was February 13th. We would go back on the morning of Valentine's day, February 14th. We had a flight. We booked a flight out that afternoon and we would be home on February 15th or 16th. So we'd be home pretty quickly. Um, and so we booked our flights, we packed our bags. Valentine's Day in the morning, we went, we got my blood sugar tested. Uh, fasting test was in the high 300s or low 400s. Two hours later, we came back and it was the same thing. So my official diagnosis came on Valentine's Day. We took a cab home, we had our bags packed, we were ready to get on a flight, we started heading for the airport. And as we walked through my host family's gate, I sat on their stoop and broke down again. Uh, for the umpteenth time in 24 hours. And Cassie looked at me and she said, do you want to go to the hospital? And I said, yes. I didn't think at that point I was strong enough to get on a flight. Um, so we went to the hospital in, in Pokhara, Nepal. Um, and th- thus began the four hardest days of my life. Um, I don't quite know what I was expecting from a hospital in, in, in a fairly small city in Nepal. But I got exactly what I was <laughs> exactly what I should have expected. Yeah, I, um, I was wondering. That was my next question: is like, what do you when you go when you say going to the hospital in in that size town in Nepal? What is what? Paint the picture for us. What do you you know? Because you know, as Americans, or uh, you know, most most of my listeners, I think, come from pretty developed modern Western style countries. Where you know a hospital, you know this the variance between hospital experience is relatively you know similar. So, give us the give us the full spectrum of what a a, a hospital in Nepal is like. So, um, we walk in. First of all, the hospital's freezing, absolutely freezing. For four days there, I was freezing the entire time to the point where I slept in my sleeping bag all four nights in the hospital uh, because there was no heat there. Um, so we go into the emergency room. We tell them our story. I've just been diagnosed with diabetes. I'd like to be admitted to to so you can. And at that point, we we realized I was in DKA. I was in ketoacidosis. Um, we knew that from the taste in my mouth. Um, and we we confirmed that a short bit later on when we found out I was at three plus. So I was at the highest level that that the hospital measured. Um, and they take me into a, just an emergency room. And the girl right next to me, who's a young girl, is violently vomiting. Um, so. I just remember staring straight at the ceiling. They hooked me up to an IV and I was just staring straight at the ceiling, trying to pretend like the girl next to me wasn't violently vomiting um, because I knew I'd be here for a couple days. So eventually they take me to my room and in doing so, they take me through the lobby. Um, most people who are admitted and stay overnight, most locals, that is to say most Nepalis who, who are admitted and stay overnight at the hospital, put down a mat in the lobby and just sleep in the lobby. 
so the lobby is full of people who are just getting their medicines administered to them on the floor. Um, we were taken to the special ward. And as I found out, as we realized pretty quickly, the special ward is for those who can afford it. So it's Westerners. And we met a couple of other Westerners in the special ward. A room at the special ward costs $10 a night. And that was too expensive for most, most of the people. Um, at one point on the first day, they told me they wanted to take me to the ICU. Um, so they, they walk us to the ICU and we open the door and I took one step in and I remember thinking everybody in this room looks like they're going to die. Just the whole feel of the room was these people are not getting better. They're just getting worse. And I stepped out and said, no, no way. Uh, with a few more colorful words than no way. Um, so we went back and we had our room and, um, and that was it. I hunkered down for what I thought would be one to two nights in a hospital because every doctor we had told us, including both Western doctors we were now talking to back home and doctors in Nepal said, we just need to flush the ketones 24 to 48 hours and you're on your way home safely. And so we were pretty excited. We, we, we knew, yeah, sure. We're in a hospital halfway around the world, but home is, is just 48 hours away. And that felt pretty great. Um, except things, we started to realize things were not, things were off pretty quickly. Um, I, they tested my blood sugar once a day and they took the blood sugar test in the morning and I found out my results at 5 PM. Um, there was, there was nothing in between. Um, there were two shots a day essentially. Um, and they were giving me either 80, 20 or 70, 30 insulin, which although very common in, in the rest of the world is, is barely used anymore in the U S if I'm not mistaken. Um, and most importantly, my blood sugars weren't coming down. And I was still in DKA. They would do a DKA test once a day and I was still in, in ketoacidosis. So they kept saying, and the doctors would come twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. They kept saying 24 to 48 more hours and then you can, and then you can be on your way home. Um, meanwhile, the hospital has no Wi-Fi, uh, nor does it have any heat. Um, so my wife would have to run to the hotel every night to update my parents and then would come back. And this is how we communicated with the, with our families. Um, and, and you can imagine how hard that was for my parents to not get updates until the end of the day. And then we would just send one email and then we wouldn't be able to communicate again. Right. Um, so by the third night we realized I was, I was running in place. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't getting better. Uh, at least I wasn't getting worse. So I'll give them credit for that, but we weren't going anywhere. Um, we happened to know a doctor in Kathmandu. And we were in touch with him, not, not so much in the first two days, but by day three, we needed his help to, to figure out what the plan was, how we get out of here. And before the, before the final night, so I think it was um, after the third night, he eventually said, all right, get out of there. Do whatever it takes. Just get out of that hospital. And thank God for this guy, because he really was what, what got me home safely. He said, get out of that hospital, book a flight, and you're going to come to Kathmandu. Nepal's capital, the biggest city. There is a, a legitimate Western clinic here that's excellent. It's four hours door to door. From the moment you walk out of that hospital, going to the airport, packing your bags, it's four hours and you'll be in this Western clinic. Um, and that final night, that third night before he said go, I can look at that night and say that is the worst night of my life. Um, because it was really just having no idea what's coming next. So we followed his advice. We packed our bags. We caught a flight to Kathmandu and we went to this Western clinic. And to give you a sense, by the way, of the of the first hospital, four nights plus all the tests they did, plus all the medicine they administered, plus all the food we ate, came to one hundred and ninety eight dollars. Wow. Um, so we get to this Western clinic, and I'm hoping they say they take a blood test and say yes, you're good enough to go home. That was kind of what I that that's absolutely what I wanted to hear. And they took one look at me and said, "You're not going anywhere. You're staying at least one night." Um, and I was so despondent at that point, but once I sat down with a the doctor there, it became very clear, very quickly that this hospital was incredible. This hospital knew exactly what they were doing, even if it was a much smaller clinic. Um, and that I was in good hands. And especially when we got the bill and saw that we were paying Western prices, we felt much better about it for some reason. <laughs> it just gave you a little bit of that financial reassurance. Yeah, yeah somehow it, it hit our wallet harder, but helped our heart and our mind put our heart and our mind at ease. Um, uh, well, and let me ask you this. So uh, for me, and I think a, a few other uh, type 1 mm -hmm. diabetics that I've interviewed, when uh, 
that disbelief of the diagnosis, at least for me and, and some of them, went away as soon as they administered like the first saline bag and the first you know dose of insulin because you know for so long you're wondering why you feel so terrible and then all of a sudden you know you you get that sort of insulin comes over you and you're like oh okay my, your blood sugar is coming down and you're back in balance you start feeling like yourself again. Uh, you hadn't had any of that up to this point in in a hospital or in a, a, with a with the doctor. Do you remember, you know, when you either in the conversations or as they're administering, you know, whatever they're giving you that you were like, okay, now I'm in the right place. Like I know now I'm going to be okay. So I had some of that feeling at the first hospital on the first day with my first couple of IV bags, saline bags. I started to feel hydrated and wasn't constantly thirsty. And that was and that was good. That feeling, unfortunately, that feeling of, of not comfort, but okay, I'm getting used to this. That went away pretty quickly because the first hospital was so such a bad experience. The second, the clinic, the second hospital in Kathmandu, that's where I, I started to come to grips with what was happening and, and get a better sense of it. At this point, I'd also had had a few emails back and forth with my friend, so those helped a lot because he made me laugh for the first time just in these emails. Um, but and the doctors at the at the second clinic were, were they were just far more down to earth and and sat me down and they they put me on an insulin regimen and they really explained what is it that was missing, right? What does insulin do for the body? What are these injections doing for you? Why are you checking your blood sugar? And that's such a critical part of it to understand why, why it is that we do all the things that we do. And the first hospital didn't do that at all. Uh, the first hospital was ready to put me on a flight without any way of checking my blood sugar. Um, and, and having, having had diabetes for three days at that point or, or known that I had diabetes for three days at that point, even I knew that was a terrible idea. The second hospital, really, really put my mind at ease. And at that point, you start to get a grip of, okay, I'm going to be fine. It's going to take a while, but I'm going to be okay. Um, it also helped that, that they had normal food. Um, you can order from the, there was a restaurant next door. All of that helps just to make everything seem more, more normal um, and to get used to it. Um, my wife did my injections for, I think, two weeks um, because my eyesight, couldn't, I couldn't focus on my eyesight. My blood sugar had been so high for so long that when it came down into the normal range, I couldn't, I couldn't focus my eyes for quite a few days. Um, so we had to get used to that. Um, but after two nights at the second hospital, and they gave me an insulin regimen, and, and at that point I was on Humalog and Lantus, which I, I'm still on to this day, I felt much better, and we caught a flight home. Um, we stopped in Abu Dhabi. That was where we had a layover. And coincidentally, my brother-in-law was working in Dubai. Um, so he took a cab over and my brother-in-law was the first family member I saw on my, on my way home and just, it was the greatest feeling to see him. I don't think he realized what I'd been through in the last week, so it was just amazing to see him and we had a, we had a, a wonderful evening, even if it was just a few hours of wandering around Abu Dhabi. Um, and then I got home. And I was home for a few days and then I think I got home on a weekend. So it was a few days before I was able to see my doctor and my doctor was great about it. Um, Again, very down to earth. He was quite happy with the insulin regimen the, the second hospital had given me. Um, and he just talked me through, again, what, what type 1 diabetes is, what it means, what the risks are. And he said his brother's had type 1 diabetes for 40 years and is absolutely fine. It's had no complications or anything like that. And that's, that's it was after that first week that I, that I start to believe, okay, it's going to be fine. You know, I have to get used to injections and a whole lot of them, but it's going to be absolutely fine. Um, yeah, and I think that that's so important, right? The the I'm gonna be okay, you know, seeing those other people, and you mentioned earlier, you know, getting those emails, uh, you know, from your friend. It's when you hear from someone who's not your doctor, um, or someone who's not you know, a nurse, or or whatever the case is, that hey, you know, you're gonna be fine. I know exactly what you're going through. Um, I can only imagine the, uh, you know, what made you laugh in those emails, you know, just either, you know, the tests or, you know, something the doctor said or, you know, just something that he knows that you're now going through. Um, and you can sort of attach, you know, yourself to those, you know, to those people. Uh, I think a lot of times, you know, we can, as, as type ones, we can try to do everything ourselves. And, you know, when you, just when you see somebody else living and thriving and, you know, laughing about or having a different uh, approach or attitude about what you're going through, it just changes things so much. Absolutely. The, the whole, your diabetes family, it's one of the most critical things to, to dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis because to, to me, the most frustrating thing about diabetes is you can have three perfect weeks and in no way does that guarantee you that the next day is going to be good. Um, 
And sometimes you just want to bang your head against the wall, and that's when you reach out to your diabetes family, and they make everything just so much easier. And and Drew, my friend, from day one, he made everything so much easier. Um, and and part of you know part of it is just laugh, being able to laugh about it is so important. But also he's got great advice. You know, um, he gave me some of the most important books for him that he read to help him manage his own diabetes. Um, and then if I ever have a question, I know I can email him or give him a buzz. Um, so I am the first person with diabetes type one or type two in my entire family. So I was very much from a family perspective, an immediate family perspective on my own. Um, and my dad hates needles, so he couldn't watch me inject. He'd have to turn away when I injected. Um, and you know, my whole family was trying to help me out in any way they could, but because they don't have diabetes and they hadn't been through the diagnosis with me and hadn't been through the learning steps, there was, there was definitely some frustration there because they would try to give advice that, um, that didn't have anything to do with diabetes. So, well, and I, it's an, it's an, go ahead. I imagine it was tough for them too, because you're, you're a grown man at that point, right? They don't, right, they, of don't course. they don't have to take care of you. And I, I, but I guess there's still that, you know, family, family, you know, parental, uh, you know, wanting to contribute, wanting to help in some way, and then just not really knowing how to do that. Of course, and my dad even acknowledged that. Um, he said, no matter what happens, I will always be his son. Even if we bang heads, he is always my father and I'm always his son. And from that perspective, all he wants to do is help. And and sure, you know, we, we, we argued about diabetes a few times and what I could do and what I couldn't do. Um, but, but at the bottom of my heart, I know that he's just reaching out from the bottom of his. Um, so at this point... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, and, and just sort of in that same vein, the things that you could do and the things that you couldn't do, um, at this point you had, you had a decision to make, right? Because you and your wife were, uh, this trip of a lifetime was interrupted uh, by your diagnosis, and now you had a choice to make of whether to continue or not. Exactly. So we were halfway through our trip. The next stop was supposed to be Southeast Asia, China, Japan, South America, and we had to make a decision if we were going to get back on the road. So we were home for about a month, and pretty quickly we decided, yes, we wanted to finish the trip. Um, and it was just a function of how long do we stay at home? How much can I learn about diabetes? Of course, my parents and most of my friends disagreed with this decision. They, they thought, cancel the trip, call it off. And their argument was, traveling with diabetes is different. And my response to that was, traveling with diabetes will always be different. I could live for, for 50 years with diabetes in my house. And traveling will always be different because it's a completely different set of circumstances. So whether or not I know how to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis in the office or at work or something like that, in my opinion, had little to do with dealing with it on the road. Um, and we also, we had a couple conversations with my doctor as well who said, look, it's a simple disease in terms of, it's a simple disease to treat. If your blood sugar is high, take insulin. If your blood sugar is low, eat sugar. Its complications can be very serious if you don't do that well, but at its heart, the treatment is quite simple. And, and that was reassuring. It reassured me. It probably did not reassure my parents. But we decided after, I think we were home for 31 or 33 days. I used to know exactly. We decided that's it. We're getting back on the road. So we packed our bags. And now suddenly I had a lot more to pack. Um, I had a camera bag that I always carried around with me. And we packed it with essentially a Tupperware that had insulin pens, uh, needles, replacement needles, replacement lancets, glucose tabs, um, measuring cups so I can measure out my food for, for carbs. Um, uh, one of those books that tells you, one of those carb counting books that tells you how many carbs and calories are in everything. And I had this little kit. I had my little diabetic toolkit. And this went with me everywhere. Um, and we kind of looked at where we could resupply for certain things. And my parents had, were going to meet us in Japan, so we had them bring us some, some extra supplies. Um, and that's it. We decided we're getting back on the road. And I consider that decision, the decision to keep traveling, the most important decision I've ever made. It's not the smartest decision. It may not be the most responsible decision. I acknowledge that it is the most important decision. Because in my mind, had I said no at that point, had I said, okay, I'm just, I'm just not going to do this because I have diabetes, so early into my diagnosis, I would always have that as an, as an excuse. And I'm so glad that I didn't allow myself that excuse. Um, so we got back on the road and we went, we headed straight for Thailand. And, and it was incredible. We traveled a little slower um, to keep the insulin cool because at that point it was 90-something degrees every day. We had to book uh, hostel rooms that had refrigerators. Um, 
little things like that. We had to make little adjustments. We moved a little slower. Um, but most importantly, we kept traveling. We, we stayed on the road, and it was such an incredible experience. I had some highs. I had some lows, both emotionally and in terms of blood sugar. But that was that's part of the experience. Um, and, and I think we're, we're both so glad that I did. And one of the, the other things that was a great help at that point was because Cassie had been through everything with me to that point, she knew my diabetes as well as I did. She knew how much insulin I should take for, for a certain meal. She knew uh, my symptoms of low blood sugar. And that made everything so much easier when we got back on the road. And, and I imagine in some ways it, it was almost a immersive sort of crash course into type 1 diabetes because it, you didn't take the easy way out. You, you know, could have stayed, like you said, you could have stayed at home. You could have gone back to work. You could have gotten into that routine. Uh, but you sort of went to the distance from the from the start. So now you know, hey, yeah, this is if I want to go do this traveling, or if I want to if I want to try to have like a, log- a logistical planning period for how I'm going to get supplies on a long journey. Here's how I'm going to do it, and you did that right away. Uh, and I think you know you you mentioned it being the most important decision that you've ever made. Uh, yeah, because if you if you played it safe, um, you would have had to learn that at some point anyway. Uh, right. And I think at that point, you know, you may have had you know predispositions about you know what it would take, and could you can find a million reasons why not. But I, I think you know it speaks to the type of people that you and your wife are like that. You just decide, hey, we're gonna do this now, and we're gonna you know <laughs> sure it might not make our family or our doctors extremely excited or uh, right off the bat. But, you know, now look how, you know, look how easy, much easier everyday life is because of that decision. Absolutely. And it was also a great logistical test. How do we, what happens if we lose certain supplies? How do we restock? Where do we go for, we have to know where the pharmacies are so that if we run out of insulin for some reason or we run out of test strips, we need to be able to know where to resupply. So that was part of the logistical challenge. It wasn't easy to get back on the road and we had a lot of homework to do before then. But once we felt like we did our homework and had all of our preparations made, there was no compelling reason not to. And we felt that it was it was a we honestly felt it was a safe decision that we could handle anything that came up. Um, and we did. One of the one of the more difficult challenges we came upon was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. So about a month and a half, I think, after we got back on the road, I had my diabetes supplies in this little sort of uh, this baggie that I stuck in my left cargo pocket as we were walking around, walking to dinner one night in Cambodia. And I heard a motorbike accelerate behind me and didn't think anything of it until that motorbike snatched my diabetes bag, thinking that it was my wallet, and sped off. So I just had my glucose monitor stolen and a little bit of insulin. The insulin wasn't a big deal. I had spares back at the hotel room, but I suddenly had no way to test my blood sugar. So I immediately start chasing down a motorbike, which is just a, an exercise in stupidity because <laughs> I'm, I'm not that fast. Um, Cassie did the much more intelligent thing and flagged down a car or flagged down a motorbike, we hopped on the back of a motorbike. So she pulls up 10 seconds later and sees, she asks, what color, what, what, what were they wearing? I don't know. What was the license plate? I don't know. What was the color of the bike? I don't know that either. And then she speeds off for a few minutes until we both realize this is, this is pointless. Um, so <laughs> suddenly we were faced with a great logistical challenge. I had to find a blood sugar monitor in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Thankfully that wasn't all that hard. Um, we just bought some generic brand until we could get to, uh, um, to San Francisco about a month later. Um, and we bought a one touch because at that point I had so many one touch test strips. Um, but it was one of those like, Oh, right. We didn't, we didn't plan on my diabetes, uh, my glucose monitor getting stolen, but now we have to make this work. Um, and, and I think but, right, right off the bat too, you get to learn that crazy, you know, lesson of, you know, not all blood glucose monitors are compatible with each other. So you could have, you know, a thousand test strips of one touch, but if you don't have a one touch meter available to you, they're almost worthless. So we actually found at one of the pharmacies in Phnom Penh, a one touch monitor, but you're exactly right. It was the wrong test strips. So we kept traveling and we just used the generic brand and, and it worked fine. The numbers were a little off, um, but it worked absolutely fine. And then we got to Hong Kong and I thought, great, I can get a one touch monitor here. Um, and then I learned something else about diabetes. The rest of the world measures diabetes differently than <laughs> we do in the U.S. They use the millimoles scale. Um, and there's no way to change the monitor to milligrams per deciliter like we measure. So we still kept using the generic brand for until we could get to San Francisco and buy a good old American one-touch uh, monitor. 
again, these are just some of the challenges we faced. And, and it was, and we decided we would face them. We would figure out what we were going to do. And we did. And it was amazing. Um, one of the, so there were two experiences on the second half of the trip that I consider very, very important for me personally. One was hiking on the Great Wall. We spent the night in the Great Wall of China. Um, and that was my first night outside of a city or outside of a town. So we were nowhere near a hospital if something went wrong. And we approached it carefully. I was definitely still a little nervous because we were, we were nowhere near help, essentially. And everything went great. Um, it was just one night away from, away from town, but it was a great test to make sure we were able to handle that. And then a few months after that, about a month and a half after that, I think, um, in May of, of 2014, we hiked. And that's four nights away from a hospital, four nights very far away from medical help, uh, along with hours and hours of hiking each day. That was an amazing challenge. And, uh, and, and I imagine that was a little bit close, you know, uh, important from a, you know, a personal perspective as well, because you were hiking in the Himalayas before you knew you had uh, type one. And then, you know, now you're doing that same, you know, strenuous days of hiking about, uh, you know, at a, at a high altitude. Um, was it, uh, you know, a little bit of a, uh, you know, a breakthrough for you personally, you know, more than just actually climbing the peak, right? You know, internally, you were feeling that sort of, uh, you know, conquering mentality. Absolutely. And there were weird parallels between the two hikes. They both went up to the exact same altitude, right around 14,000 feet. Um, it started raining on the third day of both hikes. Um, and there were other just weird parallels that, that reminded me so much of, of the hike in the Himalayas. The first night I slept in, in the sleeping bag in, on the Inca Trail, I realized as I climbed into my sleeping bag that that was the first time I'd slept in, in that sleeping bag since the first hospital in Nepal. Um, and that kept me up for a bit just thinking about everything I'd been through. But it felt, it felt amazing to hike and, and get to Machu Picchu and see it. And, and what I say is, I was learning to cope with my disease up until that point. It was when I walked into Machu Picchu that I came to peace with my disease. That, is, that, that was suddenly like, okay, this is it, right? We're, this is it the rest of my life. I'm going to be fine. Um, I have to be disciplined, and I realized that very quickly. Um, but going to be just fine. And, it was, and for that reason, the Machu Picchu hike was, was absolutely critical um, to, to me sort of being, being absolutely okay with the fact that I have diabetes. And speaking of the diabetes family, uh, I had another friend in high school who had type one diabetes, but I wasn't as close to him, but what, but I knew he'd hiked Machu Picchu. And when I reached out to him and asked him for any advice, even though we hadn't talked in years and we weren't all that close growing up, he came forward with all the help he could give words of encouragement, how he approached certain, um, how he approached his preparation and that was so fundamentally helpful, um, not only his help, but also to realize there is always help out there. Um, yeah, and I, and I want to focus on that for a second too because I'm I'm very grateful. I have to like slap myself sometimes to see if I'm dreaming because of all these all these amazing people that I've met who are so giving in the Type One community. But one thing I really want to focus on from your perspective is that you reached out and you asked, um, and that's something that I think we just culturally or as young young people or people you know millennials or whatever you you would however you classify um i think we don't ask for things enough even even and when you do and you really mean it and it's earnest it's like hey you know i'm gonna climb this i know we weren't that close growing up but now you know we have type type 1 diabetes like most people are so excited to help so you know i i encourage like you know anybody who Mm -hmm. has it may not be climbing machu picchu um, but I think most people, especially in the type one community are so giving of their time and energy, but we've got to ask for it. Absolutely. And if there's one perspective from which, from which I consider myself very lucky is that I was diagnosed at 31. And to me, that made it very easy, um, to be disciplined from my perspective for 31 years, I could eat whatever I wanted for 10 years. I could drink whatever I wanted. But it was also very easy. I, I felt like I had nothing to hide, right? I have type 1 diabetes. I'll be open with it. And that made it much easier to ask for help um, because I knew right when I was diagnosed, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I didn't, I didn't know how to eat right. Um, I wasn't particularly healthy before. I, you know, I played some sports, but I didn't eat healthy. So I, I didn't know how to eat healthy. I didn't know how to count carbs. Um, 
I didn't know how to do long hikes with diabetes. So I reached out and, and the same thing, by the way, when I started my job at CNN on day one, I walked into my office in Jerusalem and said, guys, I have type one diabetes. Here's everything you need to know. Here's where my supplies are. Ask me whatever you want. Um, I, I absolutely understand why people are afraid of, of coming out and saying, I have type one diabetes. I need help. It's difficult to ask for help sometimes. I think for some people, it's embarrassing to have type one diabetes. There's still very much a stigma attached to it, to diabetes in general, type one and type two, even if there shouldn't be. Um, but the, the community, the entire community, type one and type two, everyone is willing to help. I've found, um, and you're absolutely right on that point. And that's so critical to everybody. Everybody needs help with this because it's, it's chronic. Uh, it's every day, it's every hour and it can be frustrating. So it's a helping hand is, is always out there. Um, and look, I use that helping hand and I try to help whoever I can from this perspective. Yeah. And I think, you know, now you, you your book is the insulin express. Uh, you're obviously, you know, doing a lot to, you know, raise awareness and sort of battle some of those stigmas associated with type one. And your story is, is particularly inspiring. Um, a lot of reasons for me, because I think the voice of people with type one diabetes who were diagnosed later in their life, um, we're only starting, I think we're at the very beginning of, uh, of people who are really actively telling that story. I think there are more now, um, people are more feeling more confident, more vocal. There's, there are more platforms for them to use. And so, you know, I'm really glad that there, you know, are stories like yours of people who, uh, you know, really are, you know, living beyond and, and taking, uh, you know, taking their diagnosis and saying, okay, this isn't defined. This doesn't define who I am. But I am going to own this and 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 take and you know, and take it and live to the to the max on it. So, you know, for you as as you are you know continuing forward and and obviously you know you're in Jerusalem now and uh, and, and as a CNN correspondent you know you're using your platform to further awareness and good for the for type one diabetes. What are you hopeful for? A cure? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I'm actually not that having having now read the research. I've just decided I'm not banking on a cure. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I have to do on a day to day basis to manage my diabetes. And once that's done, I can do whatever it is that I want, whether it's hiking or traveling or, or reporting. Um, I do try to use my platform to, to get the word out there about diabetes. When the insulin express came out, which was May of this year, um, CNN health was more than gracious enough to give me a platform to post an article. Uh, I pulled a quote from the first guy with diabetes to climb Mount Everest. I pulled a couple of quotes from endurance athletes with who have uh, type one diabetes, and, and it's the idea that there's no reason for this to slow you down, but you have to do the homework, right? You have to check your blood sugars and take the insulin. Once you take care of that part, there's nothing holding you back, and that's kind of the message I've tried to get out there. Um, and, and I know there's so many just like you also trying to get that message out there, and it's encouraging. I hope it's encouraging and inspiring to so many others. I had a moment. Uh, I think about two months ago when I was reporting in London and I was reporting at Downing Street and I thought there was something very cool about that. A CNN reporter with type 1 diabetes is covering a British prime minister with type 1 diabetes. If there are any doubts about what people with diabetes can do, that picture should eliminate any of them. Um, that being said, there's still a long way to go in terms of both advocacy and education and awareness. So many people who don't have diabetes really don't know anything about it. Um, so hopefully I can be a little part of changing that, whether it's whether it's through speaking to you or others or or hopefully a few people pick up the Insulin Express and give it a read or whatever else it is that I can do. No, definitely. And I think, um, you know, you, you really hit the nail right on the head. Uh, you know, a, a type one diabetic journalist interviewing a type one diabetic prime minister. Uh you know what a great what a, just what a good feel good. I kind of got like a little chills. I was thinking, you know what, <laughs> those those are my people, you know, and uh, <laughs> and, and we're out there doing uh, you know amazing mm. things. Um, Orin, I always ask this question uh, on my podcast, and as we kind of are, uh, you know, kind of coming to the close of the interview, um, here's here's the context, and you can uh, you can answer this however you want. I want you to uh, you know to to feel you have full license on this, but here's the context okay. that I always give. So right. uh, imagine you're in an airport, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, uh, and uh, <laughs> you your gate is about to close in 30 seconds, uh, and you can't miss your flight. Uh, it's it's you know utmost importance that you're on it. But you run into somebody with uh, who was either recently diagnosed with type one or is struggling with their uh, treatment of their type one. What's the one thing that you say to them? 
wow, I need more than 30 seconds to think about this. <laughs> now I know that I need to have this answer ready. Um, I would need to refine the wording, but the message would be live life to the fullest. Um, I almost want to say don't be afraid, but that sounds too negative. It's kind of live life to the fullest. There's no reason for this to hold you back. And then I would give them my card so they can call me at any time. <laughs> yeah. And, and, so we and continue the conversation. And, to, and just to totally be fair, some people have said, like, I'm rejecting your context and I'm just going to miss my flight. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> that I assumed I couldn't say that, but I would I would happily miss a flight if somebody said, look, I need your help. Um, there's another flight coming. I might not have another opportunity to talk to whoever it is, this guy or girl who needs my help. And, and just as so many people help me along the way, I see it as my obligation to help so many others along the way. As many as I can, I should say. And uh, and we're lucky to have you in the uh, in the T one D family, and uh, you know, looking forward to uh, the work that you continue to do. Uh, Oren, if our listeners want to uh, want to reach out and find you, maybe social media. What uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, social media is probably the easiest way. I have a, a, an official Facebook page, Oren Lieberman, O R E N L I E B E R M A N N. That is two N's at the end of Lieberman. Um, I'm on Twitter. Shoot me a shoot me a note on Twitter, Instagram as well. Um, the Insulin Express. If you're curious to read it, I hope it's fun. I hope it's inspiring. I hope it makes people laugh. That's available on on Amazon. A portion of the proceeds go to the American Diabetes Association. Um, just trying to give back a little bit. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Twitter. Shoot me a note on Twitter or anything like that, and 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 I'll reach out uh, as soon as I can. Yeah, and uh, you know, thank you so much again for uh, for taking the time and interviewing us today. I know uh, you weren't feeling well the other day, and I really appreciate you uh, you being willing to reschedule. And uh, you know, we will include links to all of your your social media in the show notes, so our listeners can uh, either reach out to you or check out your book, The Insulin Express. Uh, I think I'm gonna order myself a copy. I got to hear some more of these stories, man. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Rob, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, thanks, Orrin. All the best.